All right. Um, let's do this. Let's turn to Acts 23. We're going to finish out Acts pretty soon. Um, we have a few more things to talk about, a few more chapters. So we're going to be in the whole... Okay, so here's a little disclaimer. We're going to read a lot of text today. So it can be difficult when we do that to kind of be focused and attentive on the text. Um, we've had crazy weeks. Some of you have been busy. Um, it's a lot to read. It kind of repeats itself a little bit. But let's, stay, let's stay in tune with it and go through. We'll read all of chapter 23 and a little bit of chapter 24. Okay? Um, but here's, here's the other disclaimer. It is difficult for us um, to discuss suffering um, for, a, for a few different reasons. Number one, because we don't like it. It's not pleasant, usually. right? No one's ever like, you know what? In the midst of it. Now, after, afterwards... We all, in hindsight, you know, can understand some of our suffering. Be like, you know what? Yeah, of course that was meant for good. I knew that. You know, of course. That was, that was great. You know, it, it, it was, I'm better for it, you know? But in the moment, it's rare that we can find a lot of joy in it, okay? And it's rare um, that we understand the tension between getting out of it and staying in it. Um, the tension between uh, wanting something good to come out of it quickly for us, like good for us, right? Or good for the kingdom or good for somebody else. It's just really difficult, okay? A lot of it's because there's so many means with which we can alleviate suffering now in 2019, right? Um, there's so many ways. Uh, it's, against, it's against culture to, be, to settle with suffering, okay? It's not, it's not the way we do it anymore, right? If something's hurt, you fix it. If something's wrong, you can just get out of it, right? I mean, even, even different from our, our parents' day, I feel like, if we don't like our job, there's another one available. We can just get it sometimes, right? If, if we don't like it, we can just say, well, I don't like this anymore. I'm going to do something else, right? I mean, we were talking this morning, the three of us were talking, and we were saying, if your property taxes go up, you can just sell your house and move somewhere else. You know, we can, you can do that these days. You know? It's not, not that that's suffering, but you know what I mean. There's all kinds of ways to alleviate what you're going through. So it can be difficult to discuss Right, and that that line between being a masochist and enduring suffering, we feel like is so tight. Right, we feel like oh, you're either doing one or the other, when that's not necessarily the biblical view of it. Right, especially the the Jewish worldview at the time, um, especially wasn't that, and it came in conflict with, with Roman ideals too. So anyway, that's what we're going to talk about today a little bit. I just wanted to disclaimer and say yes, it's also hard for me to talk with you about. Um, but let's get into it. Let's, let's start reading, because it's, again, so much text. Um, and remember, Paul goes before um, this council, and that's where we're going to get into it, um, this, Jewish, this Jewish council. So he goes back to Jerusalem, right, knowing that what's going to happen when he gets there. You want to remember? There's a few prophets that meet him along the way. Right, and what do they say is going to happen to him? He's going to be persecuted. Right, he's going to be persecuted. He's going to be bound hand and feet. Remember, a prophet comes up and binds his feet, which is an interesting one. It's like, hey, be still for a second. I need to make a point. And, you know, <laughs> binds his hands and feet. It's like, the person like this, this is what's going to happen to you. So we have these things. He knows he's going. And he's, going to, he's going to be inflicted persecution or trouble or hardship. Um, probably going to be wrongfully accused. We, he knows this going into it, right? So this is his first kind of um, 
Look at that. In chapter 23. And looking intently at the council, Paul says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? And those who stood by him said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, and I don't know if this is sarcastic, or if this is Paul being honest. Paul says, or they say, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul says, I did not know, brothers, that this was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So it starts off kind of hot. All right? He says, he starts this thing to, this, to, to, to the Jerusalem council, and he says, Look, I stand in conscience today, in good conscience, about what I've spoken, about what I've said under the law. The high priest immediately says, Hit that man in the mouth. That's not true. Strike his mouth that said such blasphemy. So they're about to, and Paul yells back, who are you to say strike me in the mouth? You can't do that. That's not according to the law. You're saying I'm breaking the law, so strike me. And they have this big argument. So Paul's combative right here. I like that a little bit. It's interesting. So they have this, this, they're yelling at each other back and forth. And now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, brother, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There's a, then there was a great clamor that arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him back to the barracks. Okay, so it kind of says why. There's always been this dissension between these two sects of um, Jewish thought and Jewish learning, the Pharisees and Sadducees, that one would think that there's a resurrection to the dead. So after you die, that you'll be resurrected and be with God, or at the time, there was also sects among that that would say you would cease, or you would, you would have punishment after, but there wasn't this idea, or they were developing this idea at this time of a heaven and a hell. There wasn't always this. Okay? There wasn't always the thought of there's two places one would go. Okay? Um, so at the time, the Pharisees, this party, basically, um, they're saying, yes, there is, there is an afterlife of some kind, the thought had been being formed for a while, but they had always ascribed to them there's an afterlife. Okay? That there were angels that would come. They would interpret Isaiah those ways because angels would speak to them. They would interpret other passages differently than the Sadducees because of what they believed about the afterlife. All right? Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Okay? They believed that your life would... This is super dumbing it down. Not dumbing it down. Simplifying it. I'm the dumb one for not being able to explain it in a timely manner as good as it should be. But... Basically, they would, they would say, no, your life is, is it. You must glorify God in that life. And then that would also lead to a lot of the thought on you're being punished with sickness because you're not glorifying God in your life, or your parents didn't, because everything must be contained in a life, right? So your 
rewards would be contained in your life. Your punishments would be contained in your life. So there was a lot of tension between these Jewish um, lines of thought because it would change your worldview, right? If there's an afterlife, your worldview is different than if there is not, right? If there's angels proclaiming God's truth to you, that's one thing. You might believe prophets a little less because they're men and not angels. Sadducees different, okay? Does that make sense? It's a, it's a, a nuance here that they don't get into, but it's a big deal, especially as Paul is later on trial, all right? So Paul, though, seeing that and seeing the dissension and maybe wanting to create chaos, maybe wanting to speak to other groups of people, maybe wanting protection because he feels like a mob's going to take him already, is he draws on that and he says, actually, I'm here because I'm proclaiming resurrection of the dead, which is not necessarily true, right? It's not necessarily what they were wanting him for. They were wanting him because he was proclaiming Jesus had risen from the dead, right? So when he kind of plays that to his favor, says that that's what he's on trial for, knowing that that's going to get into a bigger argument and a bigger political issue between the Pharisees and Sadducees, which does happen right then at the council. They start fiercely arguing. They lose sight of what's going on with Paul, and they, the tribune is afraid it's going to get violent. They're going to tear him to pieces, and so he steps in. All right? So that, the, they end the conversation. That part of the trial goes rather chaotic. All right? It's interesting. Um, anyway, right after that, in verse 11, it says, The following night, the Lord stood by him, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. All right, and then I'm just going to read the rest of this and we'll keep going. We'll come back to that in verse 11, but let's keep going. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. They hate him, pretty much, is the deal. Um, There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food or drink until we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune and bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Hey, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him, brought him to the tribune, and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, and going aside, asked him privately, What is it you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though you were going to inquire, or they were going to inquire more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 men are laying ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed this young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Well, obviously he will not. He would not do that. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul and ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellence, the governor Felix, greetings. This man has been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, and I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. 
And when it was disclosed to me that there was a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have said against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul, brought him by night to Antipatris, and on, um, and on the next day they returned to his barracks, letting the horsemen go on without him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. When he had learned he was from um, Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's um, praetorium. So, real quick, we'll pause and then keep reading. But, real quick, I want us to notice a few things that we'll, we'll get into in a little bit, but we'll notice them. Um, number one, uh, this, this plot has a lot of intrigue in it, right? These guys bound themselves by an oath to not eat or drink until Paul is dead. They are very hungry, by the way, right now. They are thirsty and hungry. But he, they bound themselves to an oath, basically to, to be a lynch mob against him, right? They want to catch him en route, being escorted by Romans, and they're, they're going to kill him. They're going to give justice to their people for what this man has been blaspheming, right? They hate him, so they're about to do this together. Um, ends up, um, Paul's nephew hears this, right? Um, for whatever reason, Paul and the nephew have standing enough with this governor of their region to be able to have an ear with him and be able to actually tell them, and they care enough, the governor cares enough, to say, yes, we're not going to have lynch mobs here. We're not doing it this way. We're going to send him further and protect him along the way. Now, a few things to notice about that that I think is super interesting is that we would all say that, that Paul is getting the short end of everything right now, right? Unjustly accused, imprisoned for basically lies and, and nothing, right? Um, transported between peoples that don't even care about the reason he's being imprisoned, right? Even the governor here says, I, I, it's something to do with their law. I don't even, I don't even care to explain it to you, <laughs> Felix. It's something to do with their law, but it's probably not... You shouldn't kill him about it. So I say, I didn't think we should kill him. Um, I wanted to whip him until I found out that he was a Roman citizen, remember? So I said, pass. We can't, we can't do that either. That's against the law. So I don't know what to do with him. Take him. I want to keep him safe because I'm intrigued. All along the way, in the midst of this unjust trial, amidst the suffering, amidst not being free to move about, it can be easy for us and easy for these people not to see God's providence in the midst of it see little windows of intrigue there, that, that a nephew gets to hear about this plot? Why, why would he be allowed to hear that? Why wouldn't these people know that that's his nephew, even? Right? That sounds silly, but, but the providence in that is interesting. The, the providence that, that Paul would somehow find favor with this regional ruler, and they would say, you know what, okay, we don't want that to happen to you. And yes, they didn't want it to happen because it meant he couldn't rule his people, And yes, it was, I'm sure, selfish motive. But the fact that that selfish motive was able to be played on for the good of Paul is so intriguing to me. That none of these things worked. And and I know we can talk about how Roman law was so secure and all these things, but this is still a fairly lawless place in some ways. I mean, again, they're about to flog him for just disrupting the peace, possibly kill him by whipping him until he says, I'm a Roman citizen, right? So... We have God's providence all along the way in these interesting windows to get him where he's going. And I just want us to notice it and continue and see it along the way, okay? And again in chapter 24. 
And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, um, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse, saying, Since through you we enjoy peace. I love this. Let me shower you with compliments first. Since through you we have peace, by your foresight, most excellent Felix. Reforms are being made for this nation in every way, and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no, no further, I beg you and your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of a sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find, you'll be able to find out from him everything which we accused. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming all the things were so. And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have judged over this nation, I, cle- I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that, this is, that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you now what they are bringing up against me. But I do confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written by the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both men and God. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing so, they found me purified in the temple, without a crowd, without tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to, they ought to be here before you to make, as I make this accusation, should they themselves have anything against me. Or else these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found in me before I stood at the council. Other than this, one thing I have cried out while staying among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead, and that is why I'm on trial before you. But Felix, having rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, with Lysias, or when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be presented from attending to his needs, that he is Paul. And after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he was hoping that a little money would be given to him by Paul. He was hoping for a bribe. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Pontius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is a long, arduous kind of, kind of story in some ways. We come to the fact that Paul gets this hearing with the governor, right? With Felix. He gets this, gov- he gets this hearing. They come and accuse, just like they have. Paul gives his defense. Now, Felix at the time knows a lot about the way, um, whether he was just curious or he had done a lot of trial and judgments 
according to people of the way. We're not sure. It doesn't really say in these texts. But we have this, we have this ideal. And so because he's curious, though, for two years, and he's hoping for a bribe as well, but for two years, Paul is imprisoned there, um, lightly, I say lightly imprisoned. People could come see him, basically, was the deal. He stays for two years being able to explain Jesus to Christ, being able to explain the kingdom of heaven that's at hand, being able to explain the way to this ruler and his family. Um, which sounds great. That's two years in prison also. It's a long, it's a long time. Right? It's, it's, when it's written down, it sounds short. For two years he did this. Two years is a long time. My son's only three years old, and that feels like a lifetime ago when we didn't have Tobin. Right? So it's a long time. Two years is a long time. Um, so I want us to look back at a few things in the midst of this that should, that should be encouraging to us and should be difficult for us, I feel like. Um, let's do that. First, let's look at 23, verse 11. It's when Jesus comes to him, and Paul's unsure of how this outcome is going to be. Right? He's in the midst of the Pharisees um, and the Sadducees. He's ordered to be struck on the mouth. He screams back, maybe you should be struck on the mouth. You know, whatever else happens there. They're about to tear him to pieces because of this, basically this political and theological dispute they have. And he's sitting in prison, sitting in prison, I'm sure, wondering what is going on here. How is this going to go? Maybe he thinks he's going to die soon. Maybe he thinks he's going to be set free soon. Maybe he thinks this is going to be like other parts of suffering. They may beat him near death and then he'll get to walk. Who, who knows what's going on in his mind? He's probably praying, probably trying to get wisdom here. He's, he's trying to maybe listen to the Holy Spirit. And Jesus comes and stands with him and says this, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Does Jesus say to him, take courage, you're about to be out of this mess? No. Does he say, take courage, this will all be over soon? Absolutely not. Jesus extends to him seemingly the reason why he is about to endure and why he is enduring this suffering. Right? Just as you have gotten this opportunity to testify about me in Jerusalem, I want to be testified about in Rome. Here is what's interesting about our suffering. Rarely do we think about in any form of suffering or discomfort or a position we don't like to be in, the fact that we get to, in fact, testify differently in the midst of that. It's hard for us. It's hard for us to realize that maybe, just maybe, the point of all things <laughs> would be to glorify God with our mouth, with our hands, with our feet, and our life, whatever circumstance we may find ourselves in. That is hard for us. And I'm sure it wasn't easy for Paul, or Jesus might not have needed, to go and present himself in the jail cell to encourage him to be so. He says take courage probably because there needs to be courage. You know? It's probably not a good game. I'm glad of your courage. It's probably take courage. Be couraged by me. My standing with you now is so that you may have courage. And so... And I want to tell a quick story, and I've told it a bunch of times, I think, to us, unfortunately, and 
and whatever. But when I uh, moved to Guam, I was 23-ish, 24-ish, right? And I moved to Guam. So I was in New England. Um, I worked doing some like mediation and counseling with some colleges there, and then also was a college pastor for a um, like a parachurch organization there. So like a bunch of churches would send their college students to us because they didn't have college programs or whatever. Um, and I was in, I had started dating this, this girl who was a Coast Guard cadet, and we had gotten engaged, and her first station was in Guam. And so I had gone back and forth a few times, we got engaged, and then a job opportunity, and it just sounded so, this sounded so providential to me at the time, this, um, through a network of people, this guy in Hawaii called me, I, who I'd never met, and was like, hey, I know, we know some mutual people, sort of, in the people-knowing tree. Um, and is it true that you're dating a woman who lives in Guam? And I was like, well, I'm engaged to her now, but yes, that's the deal. He was like, that's amazing. We've been wanting to start a collegiate program in Guam. We've been wanting to do that for a long time, but we've never had anyone that's willing to go, and we don't have a lot of connections there. It's still eight hours from Hawaii. He's like, it's hard for me to even go there still, because it's, Hawaii's halfway from here to there, and he was like, I'd, I'd love it if we could talk about the job. Let me fly out to Hawaii, let's talk about the job, and let's, let's talk about it. And it, was, it worked out perfect to me. Um, I really love the guy. His name's Sean Lathrop. He's a really great dude. Um, my mentor at the time and he were good friends. They were a lot alike, so it fit me really well. When the organization I was in, I didn't fit with a lot of people at all. Um, but those two guys, pretty much, I fit wonderfully with. So it was a great fit. And so I was like, yes, this is perfect. I'll get to move to Guam. I'll get to be married out there. This is going to be exciting. Let's do this. My life is going so great. This is so wonderful. And so we move out, and in a month, the whole engagement, everything just completely falls apart. It was just a disaster. It was a very rough time in my life. I grin about it now saying it just because it's fine now, you know. But at the time, it was the most blue and depressed and frustrated and doubting I had ever been in my life that month. And it was almost Christmas, and I remember talking with my dad, and I was like, Dad, I'm moving back home. I can't do this. I didn't know a single other person other than her in Guam pretty much at the time. The guy that I was working with there, he and I did not mesh by any stretch of any imagination at all. The churches there um, fought with each other. The Baptist churches I was working with fought with each other. The other churches that I was trying to work with, my organization was discouraging me to work with. It was just, it was really difficult first, like, three months on Guam. And I remember just talking to my dad one night, and I'm, like, about to be emotional talking to my dad on the phone, which I don't really love. And I'm just like, Dad, I just need to move home. This is, not, this is not working. I don't like this. I'm miserable. I was like, I'm not in a good spot, man. I was like, I just, this is just bad. I don't have any friends still. This is not going well. I'd never been in a time where I didn't have friends in my life. And I remember him saying this, and this was so perfect. He said, man, look, if you want to move home, move home. I love you moving home. He said, you're a day and a half ahead away from me. He's like, I don't even know how far it is to get there. I'm still unsure of where Guam is on a map. So, yes, get back here. Like, let's do this. He said, I want you back. And no one with you moving home would give you a hard time about that. He's like, you don't need to worry about your pride on that. No one's going to give you a hard time. We just want you here. Just come back. Get a job here. We'll find anything. The church here would hire you. Just come back. And he said, but, and he was real quiet. He's like, but look. What you'll never, ever, though, have a time to build perseverance like you will right now. Never. He's like, you're, and I don't want to tell you this because you're my son and I love you, and I don't like that you're 
really in a bad place. He's like, you sound like you were in a dark place. He said, but son, this is the only time you can build this perseverance like this. The only time you'll probably ever have. He said, so do with that what you're going to. He's like, man, I I hate to tell you that even, but do with it what you need. And I just remember hearing that and really hearing it. Really. And knowing that he was right. That, it, that, it, that I didn't even need to look for, a, oh, God's going to make this perfect in the end. Right? Or, oh, I'm going to meet my wife there one day. That wasn't at all the hope. It was just that I would maybe need to learn to actually persevere through something. That maybe I would just need to think that the kingdom of heaven was worth persevering for. And so, at that point, at Christmas, that year, um, I mean, I just, I was able, I'm not saying I was awesome, any of these things, I still wanted to come home, I was still homesick, all this. But like, God allowed me to dig deep with the people there. And it ended up that Micronesian students from all over Micronesia, all over Palau and Pompeii and um, Chuuk, and the Federated States, and, and all these different places I'm missing. There's, there's, there were hundreds of students from like 50 different islands, 100 different islands in Micronesia came to this one school. Um, it was, uh, oh my goodness, I'm blanking on the school's name. I'm terrible. Oh yeah, Pacific Island University. Good grief. It's like a, it's like a leadership and Bible college for Micronesian kids who were extremely religious and a lot of them had no idea of the kingdom of heaven at hand or Jesus. And I got to just live with them and be at their university and be at University of Guam and just live there with them, have them in my apartment all the time. We had, I was free to, at all times, just share what I knew of the kingdom and of Jesus. And they actually cared and listened. And they were all going to go back to their islands and be leaders. That's why, like the island, some of them, their own island had raised money to send them there. And then they were going to go back with whatever knowledge they learned and like ex- be expected for their life to be the pastor of like their island of 400 people. And it was this beautiful two years of getting to like dig deep with Micronesian guys like Calvin and Kevin and Charles, not Charles, Charles. And all of these all of these men and women who now, if I was on Facebook, I've looked a few times in the last four, four or five years, they are doing it. They are like the, the worship like, leader of their culture where they live. And it, it was beautiful. The two years there ended up, after the first six months weren't persevering, it was enjoying this opportunity God had given to where if I go home, if I go back to Texas, yes, I would hopefully still proclaim Jesus to people where I am. Probably would have worked at a church there, gotten a youth pastor job or a preacher. But yes, probably would have tried to do that, yes. Which would have been fine, right? People in Texas need Jesus, obviously, right? But, but for that time and that place, that was extremely important. I'm not equating my experience with Paul being in prison and Jesus saying, take courage, because just as you have spoken to people in Connecticut, you're speaking to people in Guam. I, I don't think of myself, I'm not saying that. But it did mean that to me. It meant it to me. And I, 
I still, though, have a hard time in my life realizing when I'm really pressed that maybe I don't just need to quickly look for a way out of it. Maybe I don't just need to quickly figure out how to get a better this. Maybe my job being as stressful and hard as it is, maybe I'm being asked to proclaim the kingdom of heaven there with my life, with my mouth, with my justice that I'm hopefully pressing into the world. Maybe there's something more than just us being comfortable at work. Maybe there's more than just us not liking where we live because where we are is where we are sent. And that time on Guam and that conversation with Kevin Evers, who has never lived outside of Harleton, Texas in his life, telling me to stay there, <laughs> meant um, the world to me and how I saw the kingdom and hopefully how a bunch of Micronesian men and women saw the kingdom and how people who stayed on Guam and led Chuki's churches saw the kingdom and how churches dealt with crazy white dudes that came and said different things than they did maybe. Um, that's where also I got to uh, be in with the Lutheran Church of Guam, expanded my view of so many different things spiritually, so many different um, thoughts on communion, so many different ways we, we do things. And, and it's, it's because of that. It's a forming time in my life. And I know for a lot of us, partly because so many of us are young, and partly just because of our culture, when we are in a situation that seems hard, and there is a way out, rarely do we even ask, should we take it? Because sometimes we should take it, right? There's other times in my life that I've felt so pressed and so stressed out, like my, my job I just went from to Habitat for Humanity was like crushing me, I felt like, right? So leaving that job and coming to Habitat for Humanity has been this wonderful thing that I felt comfortable with in doing. But here's the thing. We rarely even ask the Holy Spirit if we should be doing those things. Should we be moving from this position to another? Should we move from this town to another? Should we go back to what we were doing before that was comfortable? We rarely even ask that because we just want it fixed. We just want it easier again. And it's true. And I know that sounds like I'm railing against us, and I'm, I'm not necessarily... But ease and comfort are so important to us that we can't imagine why Paul would be okay staying in prison. That doesn't make sense to us. Obviously, we should try to have justice. Paul should have made sure that his accusers were, saw, were seen as liars, right? He should have justice. And what if the kingdom being known in Rome was more important than justice for Paul? Right? What if his name being cleared doesn't mean anything compared to Jesus' name being known at all? That's hard for us. It's extremely difficult for us. We like the idea of it. Sounds good for Paul to do it. Or it sounds good for me to maybe have had a glimpse, a, a brief, minute glimpse of that years ago, but I don't want it now. <laughs> to be honest, I don't. It sounds not fun. I want, to, I want to proclaim Jesus in good times as well. I want, I want the good times for me to be able to do that. Right? I don't want to have to defend my name. I want everyone to like me. <laughs> or think I work hard. Or think I'm good. That's the way we are. And it seems as if Jesus was less concerned with that. 
But it also seems in the midst of that that Jesus is still providential in our lives and still very much a part of giving us courage. This is important. I said that about the providence of God's working it so that his will will be done through Paul as well. It's not as if, and this is what we feel like sometimes too, we go through sickness or we go through suffering or we go through pain or we go through financial difficulty and we say, where is God in the midst of this, right? Is God not listening to me? What is happening? Where is God? Why isn't he answering my prayers? He says, if I call to him, he will answer me. All these things. And God, in the midst of that, in the midst of Paul, is showing us, yes, in the midst of Paul's suffering, in the midst of injustice, in the midst of being in a jail cell, and yes, people could come see him. But a Roman jail cell is different than even prison today. It's different, right? The, the fact that his nation, that we can't understand a culture like this because we're so individualistic, but that his actual brothers and sisters of his nation, his culture, hated him and wanted him dead would weigh on him. It's not like, it's not like today. It is like a part of you hates you. Your own people, your culture, your character, your identity, your, the unit, all the unity you have wants you to not be a part of it any longer. Is heavy. In the midst of that suffering, Jesus comes and says, take courage, meets with him in the jail cell, and then begins to give the courage. Finds a way for him to be transported from place to place. Gives an ear for people to listen and have him proclaim the kingdom, right? Gives him a governor that does know about the way and wants his wife to hear about it. By whatever motives. Yes, he wants a bribe. Yes, he wants these things, but he's also curious and sends his family periodically to hear from Paul and to allow Paul to proclaim. We have letters that go out to the churches during this time. We've heard of them. They're Corinthians and Ephesians and Galatians. and We have these because of this time. And there's times we can forget that even in our suffering, God is being providential to us. And I hate to say why, but I know in myself, it's because we are so focused on self and comfort. We are so focused on wanting to have it easier than we have it. As if we are owed it. As if we are owed a job that is not hard for us and pays us buckets of money. As if we are owed to have kids who are never sick as if we are owed for our parents to just naturally die of old age in their sleep and it be a surprise to us so we don't have to endure the suffering of them. We, for whatever reason, have believed that is our lot. And so when suffering does come into our lives, we don't see the comfort that is overflowing until the suffering ends. That's when we at times feel like, oh, God has stepped in, he ended the suffering. God has been a part of it the entire time. God has been with Paul in a jail cell telling him to take courage. There is a better way for this. Take courage. doesn't say you will be let out of prison. He says, no, people will know me through you in the midst of prison. Through the midst of injustice, my name will reign here. So take courage. I have a plan for you. This is your lot the entire time. This has always been the plan for you. And that would, I'm worried that would hurt us to hear. 
I'm worried that because of our culture and because of our thoughts on suffering and because of our thoughts on comfort and and because of our entitlement that we would feel like that's not fair, that God should use someone else. We miss the providence along the way. We miss the opportunities to speak and to act with our hands, to show people that suffering is not all that we care about and to show people that in the midst of things we can find joy in the midst of this, we can seek hope. And we forget that because we just like comfort so dang much. We want our name cleared. <laughs> we would want to be out of jail, obviously. And we miss it. We miss it. And then also, in the midst, let me get back to the passage, in the midst... We have this, this beautiful thought of, of Paul getting to actually do from prison what God is saying he's been purposed to do. So I don't know, I've, I've alluded to it over and over and I've said it a bunch of times, but I just love it so much. Um, let me get to it. But Felix in verse 22 in chapter 24, having an accurate knowledge of the way, put them off. It says, when Lysia the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case, then gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, that none of his friends should be prevented to attending his needs. And some days, and after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. The fact that he gets to do what God has promised he would get to do. And it lasted a long time, two years. Here's the deal. Paul has time with Jesus in a jail cell, and he says, take courage. This is what you're going to do. For two years, the promise is not fulfilled to us, right? He's not getting to go to Rome, but he's getting to do all these things in the midst of the kingdom. He's getting to, to speak to people who would not have the way spoken to them. He's getting these wonderful opportunities to be in a new culture and to be able to speak as a prisoner, to be able to show that he can have joy as a prisoner. Right? For us, one of the biggest difficulties that we have is being able to be long-suffering. Right? The fact that a suffering or an imprisonment might be two years feels like eternity to us. Or to be sick for two years or to deal with insecurity for two years, or to deal with financial turmoil for two years, feels too much. If, if the Holy Spirit met with us, spoke audibly to us in our room at night, and promised that good would come of it, after two years, I promise you, I would doubt that that would even happen. I would think I was a crazy person. Because with us, we are so quick to need fulfillment, We're so quick to have to see the good in it that comes in a big, dramatic way. We're too quick to need it alleviated. We are. That's who we are. Long-suffering is such a foreign thing to us. Such a foreign thing. I mean, again, it, it shows even in my time on Guam, usually people say to me, well, of course that worked out. I mean, you met Lily and married her, right? And yes, that's awesome. I'm glad that that happened, Lily. Very, very super glad. Right? But 
if God doesn't do that? Does that make that pointless and void? Because it wasn't as dramatic as, as meeting a really beautiful, wonderful woman? No. But that's what everyone... Uh, oh, of course your time on Guam was great. Look what happened in it. I'm like, well, yeah. That was a really good part. There's so many little things along the way. And so many times I had the power turned off in my apartment. And so many times that, you know, people at churches said I went a Christian. And so many other things that were a part of that. But we, we're just not very long-suffering. We hate the fact that we could think of that we still may be in the same situation of difficulty in two years. Truly, we've done something wrong if that's the case, right? Truly, Paul just didn't know how to defend himself. He was there two years. And I just, and again, I, I, don't, I don't know your situation of that, and I don't know what the Holy Spirit has been leading you to think, or if you've even been consulting it. That's the issue. In the midst of trial, do we even consult the Holy Spirit? Or do we basically consult the Holy Spirit asking to be relieved of the trial? That's usually what we do, I would assume. That we say, okay, let's get this fixed. Holy Spirit, do your thing. I'm asking you now, look how good I am being by praying to you that you would fix it rather than trying to fix it on my own. Let's do this together. Fix my problem, right? And we rarely consult if we should stay in the problem. We rarely even have to deal with that tension. Rarely deal with should the suffering be okay. Maybe we're being challenged to find joy in the midst of it. Maybe this is just life. And in fact, it will follow us wherever we go. And we should not expect to flee from suffering with such fast feet. Maybe trudging along in it is not in and of itself bad. Maybe it's for the kingdom of heaven that is at hand. Maybe it is for the people that live around you watching you. Maybe it is so that, in fact, in you, you can be made whole and complete, not lacking anything. Maybe we're missing God's providence all along the way of it. And it's been beautiful if we would have just had eyes to see and ears to hear. So I just want us to ask God to change our view of it, to change our view of suffering and trial. There's no telling you what to do about it today, right? Maybe we change our view and we ask better questions in the midst of it. Maybe we look for different joys. Maybe we look for different providence. Maybe we start asking what God is doing in the midst of our suffering. Where God is glorified in the midst of it. Where our joy can be made complete in the midst of it. Where we can be people whole and complete, not lacking anything. Okay? So let's pray for that. Let's stand together. And I... It like, it's such an interesting picture, though, what we're about to even do in the midst of thinking of suffering. Because we're about to take a broken body and spilled blood and say we are one with it, yet we don't want the hurt that comes from it, right? Let's acknowledge that. That every time, oh, not every time maybe, you're different than me, I'm sure. But when we take communion, we want the good part of that Jesus' life, right? We want the resurrection, which is great to want. But we want it without the pain that came before it. We want it without the long-suffering, without the injustice. Right? Without the disloyalty. We want the reward of it. 
But in taking communion today, let's say we will take all of it. Maybe today you can't take it gladly. That's fine. But maybe we say we want to be able to. Maybe we say we cannot conjure up this feeling of wanting to look for you in the midst of suffering, to wanting to find joy in it. I can't make myself want your glory in it more than my suffering to be alleviated. Maybe that's true for you. Maybe we say that as we take a broken body and put it in this, this spilled blood and say, I want you all of it. Please help me want all of it. Maybe that's what we say today. All right? So let's pray to that effect. And then what we're going to do, after I pray, we're going to enter a, a, um, a liturgy response. And then after that, we'll say the Lord's Prayer together. We'll have one song or two, one song. Um, so go ahead. If you'd like to take communion with us, go ahead and do that during that song. And we'll continue. God, we love you. And we ask that as we speak this liturgy to you together, that we would believe it and hear it. That as we say we want to be one and eat your flesh and drink your blood like you spoke in in John 6 that was so confusing to your people then, it's confusing to us now that we would have some clarity. That some of us would indeed take courage from today. That we would be people who don't shy away from long suffering, knowing that it can make us whole and complete, not lacking anything.